Thank you for that, Logan. We appreciate you being with us and leading us in worship today. Uh, to one of my favorite hymns, Nothing But the Blood of Jesus. This is all my hope and peace. Uh, this is all my righteousness. Um, uh, just a beautiful, beautiful hymn of our faith. Our passage today, as we continue in Matthew, is going to come from Matthew chapter 16. We're going to be reading Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20. Matthew 16, 13 through 20. Now Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi. He asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? They said, so they said, some said John the Baptist, others Elijah, so others Jeremiah are one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he sternly ordered the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Israel is an interesting, laid-out country. I don't know how many of you are familiar with how Israel is laid out. Israel is roughly the size of the delta. You know, you may be familiar with the old saying, the delta begins in the lobby of the Peabody Hotel in Memphis and goes to Catfish Row in Vicksburg. The delta is roughly from Vicksburg to Memphis, from the river to the bluff, to the hills, Winona, give or take. It's not a big geographic area. The Holy Land in Jesus' day is roughly the same size. Not exactly. It's not a one-to-one -one ratio, but it's pretty close geographically, size-wise, distance, and all that. So, if you can think about the delta in your mind, you can think about how big Israel is. And it would be nothing to drive from Vicksburg to Memphis off Highway 61 in a couple hours. How, how far is that, Dan? You're a delta boy. Three hours? About three hours. Give it to, ooh, three hours. That ain't three hours. It's, I like the way you drive. It is three hours? Really? From Vicksburg to Memphis? How fast y'all driving? I admire that. But that doesn't seem. Okay, good for y'all. Once again, I admire it. So, but anyway, so for vans, MPG, three hours. Okay. So how long how long it take you to get from Greenville to Winona? Hour, hour and a half, two hours? Okay. I got another band that says two hours. Okay. So that that's roughly the size and the length of the Mississippi Delta. That's Israel. So Israel has to it kind of three geographic areas. You have Jerusalem in the center. Jerusalem is kind of smack dab in the center. And when you read the Psalms, you'll remember Psalm 21? I lift my eyes to the hills from whence does my help come? 
The hill it's referencing there is Mount Zion, where the temple is. In the geography of Israel, so if we were going to go, if we were going to get in Van's van after the service and take the three-hour drive to Memphis, which apparently how fast Van drives, how, what direction are we going to Memphis? We would probably say north, or we'd probably say we're going to go up to Memphis, right? If we're going to leave here and go to the Gulf Coast, we're going to go down to the coast. We typically say going north is up, going south is down, typically. Well, in the Bible, in Israel, no matter from what direction you're going from, you go up to Jerusalem. And you go down from Jerusalem because Jerusalem is Mount Zion. Jerusalem is the temple. So you go up to Jerusalem, you go down from Jerusalem. So remember the story of the um, Good Samaritan? He was going down to Jericho. If you look on the map, Jericho is north of Jerusalem. But you always go down from Jerusalem. You always go up to Jerusalem. I'm just saying that to say that Jerusalem was the sun that they orbited. Everything in the Holy Land, everything in Israel was based on Jerusalem being the point and the purpose. So that was central Israel, was Jerusalem. The, north, the southern part, Beersheba, these, these, these places, that was all desert. You go south from Jerusalem, you're going into the desert. Remember when Jesus was tempted after the baptism and said he went into the wilderness? That means he went into the desert. From my brain, when I think wilderness, I always thought the woods. Because that's all we had in Bogotá was woods. So my brain thought woods or wilderness, if you will. But in the Bible, Jesus was actually going into the desert is where he was going. So central, Jerusalem. South, desert. North part is Galilee. Galilee. That's where Jesus was from, Galilee. Galilee was kind of the, to use our terminology, it was kind of the redneck part of the country. Remember in John, when some of the early disciples saw Jesus, and they said, come meet this man from Nazareth, and one of them said, how can anything good come from Nazareth? Galilee was the backwater. Galilee is where you didn't really want to be. That was those country bumpkins, if you will. So, Gal but Galilee is also where most of the farming was because it was the only land in Israel that was suitable to farm on. So, if you'll notice, when Jesus gives the parable of the sower, those farmers, you know where he gives that parable at? Galilee. He would not have told a story about farming to people in Jerusalem or to people in Beersheba because that wasn't what they did there. So Jesus was talking of that in Galilee. And then around parts of the country sporadically, especially in Galilee, by and large, because it was really the only land suitable for farming, Rome would build different colonies. Decapolis is one of them, the ten cities. You would see these Gentile cities, colonies built around. Remember at one point when Jesus cast the demons out into the pigs? Remember that story? You may, be think, you may have always wondered, wait, pigs were unclean to the Jewish people. Where did these pigs come from that Jesus cast the demons into? 
They came because they were, they were, a, it was a Gentile city. Okay. I'm saying all this to paint the scene for where we are in this story. They are in Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi is a Roman city. It is a Roman town. It is Gentile. It was, it was, there was historically an old Jewish town built around there, but Rome came into town and they built this larger city. They expanded upon it, and this was now a Gentile city. So that's where they are. Caesarea, Caesar, Philippi, Philip. This was Roman, Gentile, pagan. And Jesus is talking to the disciples here at Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi is known for a couple of things. First, it is in the headwaters of the Jordan River. Mount Habor is north of there. And that is where the, the snow melts and feeds the Jordan River. So Caesarea Philippi is very important for the Jewish people because it is where the Jordan technically starts. But the other thing that's interesting about Caesarea Philippi that has great importance to our text today is this cave. In Caesarea Philippi, there is a cave that's opening. Yeah, it's bigger than this stage. Like the opening is, is, is bigger than the floor. It's probably twice as tall as this, I'd say. It's a huge, 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 huge cave. In Jesus' day, they didn't even know how far back it went. They, they didn't know. And the, one of the interesting things about this cave was this cave smelt of sulfur. There was always a strong smell of sulfur coming out of this cave. And so... The, remember I said this was a Roman town, a Roman colony? So Rome built several t pagan temples there at this cave. In fact, the biggest one they built was to their god, Pan. I know you're all well-versed on your Roman mythology, but Pan was in their religion. Pan was the guardian of to the underworld. And in fact, Pan, if you were to get too close to the underworld, their god Pan would come upon you and set you into a frenzy or a panic. That's where that word comes from. That's what Pan would put upon you, would be a panic to keep you out of the underworld. So, the Romans believed that this huge cave in Caesarea Philippi was the, was the gateway or the entryway into the underworld. You know what the Jews believed? That this cave was the literal gates of hell. It was a cave so deep that no one had ever fully explored it. And it smelled of sulfur. So for the Romans, they thought this was the entryway to the underworld, to the, to the afterlife, where they built their shrine to the god Pan. 
to the Jews. It was the literal gates of hell. So I want to reread what Jesus says to Peter. Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. On this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not triumph against it. In other words, they are standing in front of what they believed to be the literal gates of hell. And when Peter confesses Jesus Christ as Lord, Peter, Jesus says, you are right. And this knowledge, this confession of me as Lord was not revealed to you by any person, but this was revealed by my Father, and the gates of hell will not triumph against the church. In other words, you see that thing behind you? That big cave behind you? That you believe to be the gates of hell? You see that right there behind you? It will not triumph against the church. Jesus told Peter the gates of hell would not triumph against the church when he's literally standing in front of the gates of hell. Maybe the greatest object lesson in speech history ever. Remember in speech when you had to do a, a speech with an object lesson? Jesus gives the greatest object lesson ever saying, the gates of hell behind you, it will not triumph against the church. And y'all, that's a great reminder, isn't it? That the gates of hell will not triumph against the church because sometimes sometimes we think God is too small one of my favorite lines from a, a song is uh, U2 they have a, a song nobody's ever heard of called stand up comedy off one of their later albums and there's a line in that song that I love where Bono says Stop helping God across the road like a little old lady. I love that line. Stop helping God across the road like a little old lady. He's the sovereign God of the angel armies. Do we really think he needs us? He's God. And the gates of hell will not triumph against his church. So we as Christians... We as members of this church don't have to be afraid, don't have to be scared, don't have to be angry, don't have to be worried, don't have to be threatened by anything because God's holy word has promised us that the literal gates of hell will not triumph against his church. And if we have a God, if we're serving a God who we believe is always under threat, by something we fallible humans can do, we haven't read God's promises. We have no reason to be afraid of any of these things because he is God. 
And his word has promised that nothing will triumph against his church. I love that story. I love that scene from scripture. And I love that beautiful concept that in a world so full of fear, in a world so afraid, in a world so angry, we don't have to be because we serve a God who's overcome even death. And we serve a God who has promised us that the gates of hell will not triumph against his church. So we have no reason to be afraid and no reason to be scared and no reason to be worried. And I know that our life can sometimes seem to be overwhelming. And I know that we can be faced with so many problems. And I know that we can often feel beset by so many issues and so much fear and so much worry. And it's so easy, y'all, it's so easy to devolve back into, oh no, what are we going to do? Oh no, how are we going to handle this? And I'm not just talking about church stuff, I'm talking about life. I mean, how many of us now face problems, that, how many of us now in life face problems with work? That seem overwhelming. How many of us seem to have problems in family that seem overwhelming? How many of us have to seem have problems across the board that seem overwhelming that we don't know what we're gonna do? Well, we often feel uncertain, afraid, scared, maybe even angry. And it's so easy for us to want to give up hope, isn't it? I was watching um, uh, one of the Batman movies the other day, uh, The Dark Knight Rises. Spoiler alert, Batman wins. But I end that one, if you've familiar the plot, at one point, uh, the main bad guy in there, Bane, he throws Batman in a prison, Bruce Wayne in a prison. And it's a prison designed to torture people because the entire time he's in prison, there's an escape right in front of him but it's just out of reach. And he says, there can be no true torture without hope. That's a little dark for me. (laughs) There can be no true life without hope. So I think one of the ways the devil gets at us, I think one of the tricks the devil plays it with us, is he tries to remove hope from our lives. He tries to remove hope from our lives. And if he can ever get us hopeless, then he can truly defeat us. I I think about one of my beliefs is when you go back and look at Jesus' betrayal and what Judas did, we know that spiritually the Bible tells us that the devil was at work in Judas. This is the devil entered into him. But I think the reason why Judas was so prone to the attack of the devil was because I believe that Judas was expecting Jesus to be someone he wasn't. I think Judas, like so many in Jesus' day, was expecting Jesus to be an earthly king. So that's why Jesus says to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my followers would fight. I think Judas was wanting Jesus to be an earthly Messiah. So I think 
beyond the spiritual reality of the devil at work, I think the reason why the Judas was susceptible to the devil was because he didn't know what to do when Jesus wasn't who he wanted. What do we do when life doesn't turn out the way we want? What do we do when paths diverge that we would not have taken? What do we do when our children make choices that we don't like? What do we do when our parents make choices that we don't like? What do we do when spouses make choices we don't like? What do we do when life gets hard? What do we do when life is challenging? And I think that's where the devil loves to take hope from us. I think the devil wants us to feel hopeless and afraid. And that then leads to anger. So Jesus tells Peter, he says, upon this rock, I will build my church. There's always a lot of debate upon what that means when he says upon this rock. But in the traditional Protestant understanding, the rock that Jesus builds the church upon isn't just any one individual, but it's faith. Faith is the rock that Jesus always builds his church upon. Faith. 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 And sometimes it's easy to lose faith, isn't it? Faith faith and hope are often linked to each other. And so Peter says, you're the Messiah. I have faith in you. And so Jesus says, well done. This is not revealed to you by man, but by my Father. So I think one of the reasons why we lose our faith, why we lose our hope, is we allow ourselves to be disconnected from the strength of the Father. When our prayer life grows weak, we feel disconnected and we begin to lose hope. When our study of Scripture grows weak, we begin to feel disconnected and lose hope. When our worship grows weak, we begin to feel disconnected and lose our hope. Y'all, the devil is going to do everything in his power to keep us from reading Scripture, to keep us from praying, to keep us from worshiping, to keep us from serving. Because if he can do that, if he can do that, then we're easy pickings. Then we're easy pickings. You ever um, built a campfire and your coals are hot? Get you a stick. Get you a stick. And just one move, move one coal off to the side. Get the one coal off to the side of the fire. And what will happen to that one coal when it's isolated, when it's away from the fire? It will grow cold. It will grow cold. That's what the devil can do to us whenever we lose our hope. That's what the devil can do to us when our faith grows weak. That's what the devil can do to us when we feel alone and isolated. That's what happens. So today, Jesus tells Peter, blessed are you, Simon, for this was not told to you by man, but it was revealed to you by my Father above And the gates of hell will not triumph against my church. 
So today as Christians, we don't have to be afraid. Today as Christians, we don't have to be worried. Today as Christians, we don't have to doubt or fear or be turned aside or any of these things because God has promised us, God has promised us that the gates of hell will not triumph against the church. The gates of hell will not triumph against the church. And that is the truth that we hold on to. That's the truth we cling to. That is the truth that we internalize and that we place deep down within our souls. That Christ church will emerge victorious. I don't know how many of y'all have ever um, read the Screw Tape Letters by C.S. Lewis. If you've not read the Screw Tape Letters, you need to add it to your reading list. It's, it's a wonderful book. Um, Lewis can often be challenging to read at times. Uh, Lewis uh, wrote in a 1940s uh, British style. So, you know, it's not always the easiest to read. Uh, that's why I like Tim Keller. Because Tim Keller often writes similar themes to C.S. Lewis. But instead of writing from a 1940s British perspective, he writes from a 2010 New York City perspective. So it kind of sounds a little easier to my ears. But Lewis has a great quote in his book, Screwtape Letters, about the church. Or if you, are, if you aren't familiar with Screwtape Letters, it's written from the perspective of a senior devil in hell, Screwtape, writing his nephew, Wormwood. And Screwtape is offering advice to Wormwood about how to keep a Christian from growing. And it's really good stuff. Lewis says it was the easiest book he ever wrote because it is very evil. It's very easy to be evil. <laughs> Being good is harder. But in this book, he has this wonderful quote I love about the church. He, he calls, um, he, Screwtape calls God the enemy. Because remember, he's writing from a demonic perspective. So he calls God the enemy. And he calls uh, the, the individual, the younger, the younger demon is afflicting. He calls him the patient or the client. He said, always allow the client to see the church as, and then he names names, Mr. So-and-so with bad breath or Mrs. So-and-so who does this. He said, never let the client see the church as we see it. The glorious army of the enemy. With, batter, with banners unfurled, undefeated throughout all of the ages, glorious in battle and in triumph. And I love that. Always let them see the church as we see it, weak and afraid and divided. That's not the image Jesus paints for us today, is it, friends? He paints the image of the church as the glorious body of Christ, undefeated throughout all the ages, the glorious body of Christ to which the gates of hell cannot triumph against. He paints the church as Christ's own body. That the gates of hell will not triumph against. So today, remember who you are as a child of God. But remember whose you are. And remember who your family is. And remember who you belong to. For you are a part of Christ's glorious body. And the gates of hell will never triumph against God's church. Remember that.
and do not be afraid. Keep the faith. Keep the hope. Christ's church will never be defeated. Let's pray.